Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, the Senate passed a motion to move forward next week and vote on a measure to limit presidential war powers in Yemen. The 63 to 37 vote reflected bipartisan support. Here's Republican co-sponsor Mike Lee of Utah. U.S. intervention in Yemen is unauthorized, unconstitutional, and immoral. And we must not, we cannot delay voting to end our involvement and our support of Saudi Arabia any further. If we do, we have ourselves to blame for our country's lost credibility on the world stage. And more importantly, our own consciences will bear the blame for the thousands of lives that will surely continue to be lost. The vote followed a closed-door briefing from Secretary of Defense James Mattis and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The Trump administration called for a ceasefire in Yemen a month ago, but objects to next week's vote. The Secretary of State said the effort is poorly timed. We are on the cusp of allowing the U.S. envoy Martin Griffiths to, in December, uh, gather the parties together and hopefully get a ceasefire. In Yemen, something that we have diplomatically been striving for for months, and we think we're right on the cusp of that. And so it is the view of the administration, Secretary Mattis and myself, uh, that passing a resolution at this point undermines that. It would encourage the Houthis, it would encourage the Iranians, it would it would undermine the fragile agreement for everyone to go to uh, Sweden and have this discussion. That's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. On the line with us is Shireen Aladimi. She's from Michigan State University, and she's going to be in Chicago to speak at a lunchtime rally to end the war in Yemen at Federal Plaza tomorrow at 11. And then she speaks at Loyola University on Saturday. Good to have you on again, Shireen. Thanks for having me back. What do you make of Mike Pompeo's argument there? He says that this is a poorly timed vote and the effort to get a ceasefire in Yemen and just getting rolling, they're going to go to talks in Sweden. Is that um, – what do you make of that? Well, yeah, there are efforts to hold peace talks in, in Sweden uh, probably by you know mid to late December. Uh, but the f- fact of the matter is the U.S. has been a partner in the coalitions, uh, the Saudi-led coalition's war against Yemen from the beginning, from 2015. And uh, the Trump administration now is trying to protect their relationship with the Saudis. They're trying to protect their weapon sales, and they continue to provide support to the Saudis, even if the refueling, they say, has stopped. Um, and they're refusing to um, hold Saudi Arabia and themselves accountable for what's going on in Yemen. So, of course, it's their, in their interest to um, not support any kind of uh, congressional, um, uh, you know, uh, congressional action against the war in Yemen. Congress is trying to take it, uh, take the power away from Trump and his administration, and to um, declare that this is unconstitutional and that this war should stop. And of course, Pompeo would not be happy to do that. Are you worried about? some of the action in Congress being a message-sending kind of uh, vote that really the Khashoggi affair is uh, a big driver in the frustration with Saudi Arabia. It's not really the war in Yemen. And ultimately, the congressional action uh, to limit war powers is going to putter out somewhere along the line in the House of Representatives or somewhere here that really the the vote is um, the moving forward in the vote next week will, will kind of be symbolic. It'll get vetoed. Um, the odds of success are what? 
probably low, but we've been getting more and more support in the House. Nancy Pelosi has uh, co-sponsored a similar bill in the House, uh, H-Con Resolution 138, and we are pushing toward you know action in the House and in the Senate. The War Powers Resolution can be invoked over and over again. Um, symbolic or not, I think it's really important for people, more people to learn about what's going on and to call for an end to this war, to call for a U.S., um, this U.S.-backed war to, to stop. Uh, back in March, when or late February, when this bill was first introduced in the Senate, SJ Resolution 54, there were 44 senators at the time who voted to allow the vote to take place, and so it didn't succeed. And now we have 63 who've allowed, who voted to allow this bill to to be voted upon. Uh, so I think that's progress. Most likely, Khashoggi's murder has been a catalyst. It's sad that the hundreds of thousands of lives in Yemen were not the catalyst to this. But I think whatever the catalyst is, um, it's really important to shed light on this toxic relationship between the Saudis and the Americans and to finally end the U.S.'s um, shameful war, uh, shameful uh, acts in this, in this war in Yemen. The uh, Trump administration and Donald Trump himself just made a straight-up argument that our relationship with Saudi Arabia is too valuable monetarily. And they say, well, you know, they control the price of oil and we want to be friends with the people who control the price of oil. They invest a lot in the United States. Um, These arguments are winning the day with the administration. why should – how do the – you know, they don't want to change their stripes as, you know, every administration has previously. They all side with the, the power and the money. I think what's interesting here, of course, yeah, Trump is being very transparent about the relationship with the Saudis, which is, you know, um, kind of a breath of fresh air, if, if we can call it that. Um, previous administrations maybe would, were more diplomatic about the way they spoke about the relationship with Saudi Arabia. But at the end of the day, the U.S. is breaking its own laws to continue to help the Saudis in Yemen. They are going against the War Powers Resolution of 1973. Um, they are, you know, you heard, uh, you played the clip of the Senator, Senator Lee saying this is unconstitutional. Um, you know, it does not have congressional support, and Congress must authorize any kind of uh, action in, you know, overseas, or it must declare war. The president can't do that. And so we are breaking our own laws to be able to support the Saudis. And I think, you know, at the very least, this should uh, bring into question the role of uh, the executive powers and uh, what this country needs to do to align what they say are the laws with what the actions really are. Uh, also joining us right now is Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Earlier this month, she was in New York protesting at the United Nations and the Saudi mission there about ending the war in Yemen. Good to talk with you, Kathy. Hello, Steve. Thank you. And hello, Shireen. Um, Kathy, um, tell me a little bit about your experience in New York and what it looks like from the United Nations point of view uh, when you start talking about Yemen. Uh, what, what are the feelings there? Well, we persist from the uh, spot right across the street from the United Nations, often referred to as the Isaiah Wall, uh, clamoring for swords to be turned into plowshares and carrying the names of 34 children whose bodies were identified in a horrible airstrike on August 9th that killed children on their school bus. They had just been issued brand new UNICEF backpacks, so we carried similar uh, colored and sized backpacks to commemorate those children. We uh, read out their names, and we went to the to the Saudi consulate, which is a block away from the Saudi mission. 
And, you know, it's very interesting that both of those buildings are complete, completely unmarked. You know, the other countries are flying their flags, but you don't even know where the Saudi mission or where the Saudi consulates are located. But it, inside those consulates, we believe very, very dangerous activity is being conducted, reckless activity. And so we um, blockaded the entrances to the Saudi consulate. We said to people that wanted to go and look what's going on is too dangerous. And look at all these police that are here. You can tell it's really a dangerous situation. And we weren't very firm with our blockade, to be honest. People could go past if they were really insistent on getting in. Some people agreeably turned away. But, you know, if there were human trafficking or a big narcotics ring being conducted down the hall from you inside one of those big, huge buildings, I think most people would say, you know, we've got to blow the whistle on this or this isn't tolerable. But, you know, what Shireen has been describing has cost the lives now, according to Save the Children in Yemen, of 87,500 children under age five. One out of every two people in the country, 14 million people, are facing starvation. And United Nations agency heads know this, and they've tried to sound the alarm. I mean, it's Lokak, the head of humanitarian mission in the U.N., who is saying that it's possible that 14 million people in Yemen will be on the brink of a starvation that the United Nations cannot alleviate. So I think you know many, many people going in and out of the United Nations are aware of this, and they don't like it that the United States is supporting, uh, through a proxy war, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia to continue to bludgeon Yemenis into submission. Um, Shireen, I wonder if you could expand on Saudi Arabia at the United Nations, because the way Saudi Arabia can throw its weight around with the Trump administration, it kind of does the same thing at the United Nations. They do. Um, There was just a report that came out today explaining that, or yesterday, explaining that um, Hamid bin Salman, the crown prince, threw a tantrum, threw a fit when he found out that the UN was trying to push this uh, Security Council is trying to push this resolution to just call for a cessation of hostilities. They're not even imposing any sanctions or anything like that. They were just calling for all parties, as they normally do, to uh, seize hostilities, and he threw a fit. So he's not used to being challenged. He's going around killing these kids, um, committing war crimes in Yemen, uh, in this genocidal war, really, because he's trying to starve an entire nation to death. And he's been doing that with impunity and, in fact, with support of so many Western and Arab allies over the last three and a half years. Uh, And a couple of years ago, when the UN tried to um, place the Saudis on the list of child killers, they were on that list for, I think, about 72 hours before they threatened to pull funding from various UN programs. And then Secretary General at the time, Ban Ki-moon, admitted that this was the case and that he was very distressed at having to remove them from that list. So they've been throwing their weight around and they've been provided cover by the United States, by the UK, by other countries who are profiting and who are supporting them in this war. Would Saudi Arabia, they're also the uh, largest contributor to Yemen humanitarian efforts through the United Nations. So they uh, they are they have some clout there. I think it's shameful that the UN continues to accept that as some sort of you know reason to allow them to um, continue doing what they want. They've created the world's worst humanitarian crisis. 
you know, 90 million or whatever, a billion dollars, even uh, a couple billion is not going to restore the damage that they've done to an entire country. We're talking at least 85,000 children. These are just the kids between ages zero to five who died of starvation and, and cholera. You know, what are their lives worth? What are the lives of 57,000 Yemenis who have been killed by airstrikes worth? Um, I think Saudi Arabia and the UAE position themselves as, um, you know, um, gift givers and, and, you know, that they're providing for Yemen and saving Yemen. And, in fact, they've created this crisis. And if they provide anything for Yemen, it really should be restitution and it should be an end to all of this, uh, the massacres and the destruction that they've caused in this country. Um, I wonder if you think the United States has to fundamentally break its relationship with Saudi Arabia to 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 stop the war. I mean, is there a, a fundamental shift that's going to happen here, or is this? Um, it seems like a, the United States, uh, the Trump administration, would like to go on and and kind of go to business as usual. The only thing that would would stop the war would be a, a solid break. Uh, Shireen. I think- I think the U.S. and the Saudis have similar interests in the region, and they've been partners for a very long time, and I don't think that relationship would be broken anytime soon, And which is why I think it's up to Congress to really put an end to this administration um, and, and their you know, support of war crimes in Yemen, their facilitation of war crimes in Yemen. Um, are, you know, are the Saudis and the Americans going to stop being best buddies anytime soon? I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's realistic to expect that, even though it should, because it's a very hypocritical relationship to have. The U.S. says that they care about human rights and dignity and democracy, yet they're working and their close allies are neither democratic nor care about human rights in their own, co- own country or abroad. Um, and so I think it's, uh, you know, maybe one day we'll have an administration that is... Um, more aligned with the values that this country says it has and will end their relationship with the Saudis. I don't think we're going to see that happening anytime soon. I'm talking with Shireen Al-Dimish. She's from Michigan State and Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Coming up after the break, we're going to discuss uh, the Costs of War Project, and they are going to tell us about how much the post-9-11 wars have cost us in terms of lives and dollars in a related issue. Um, Kathy, I wonder, you know, I saw a poll conducted by the International Rescue Committee and YouGov, and it's a new poll, and I was surprised by the findings. 75% of people surveyed say they oppose U.S. military support to the coalition efforts in Yemen. 82% of respondents agree that Congress must vote to end or decrease arms sales. Um, there's um, a lot of popular support for doing something about the uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia and uh, Yemen. Uh, Do you see this when you you are out there on the street with people? Well, I think that because of increased media coverage, particularly after that August 9th bombing of the children on the school bus, and then certainly a, a, a big uptick in media coverage following the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, I think that there is much more awareness, and with awareness, uh, generally, uh, most people don't want to see children starve to death in order for the financial interests of a country that's uh, ostensibly allied with the United States. But I think many still wonder, well, why are we so allied to Saudi Arabia? I mean, I, I, I sure hear Shireen's desire for one day when there will be more recognition. You know, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo characterized uh, the dissent within the Senate as catherwalling on Capitol Hill and 
a, a pile-in of the media, a media pile-in. He said that the night before the vote that was taken yesterday. Well, I, I think he's got it wrong. I think there is a hue and a cry, and it's not just caterpillaring on Capitol Hill, although there certainly should be a lament being raised. But I think the hue and the cry is going up all around the country. I think, you know, there are some people who are pretty savvy about economics. Professor Issa Blumi certainly is one of them. And he says that uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman wants to put the Saudi oil company Aramco up on uh, the market, basically, for uh, as an IPO. Right. But that no investors would, would dream of investing in it because they know that the Saudis don't have anything other than cash. They don't have the financial interests and bases of owning resources. So what are they going to do about it? They want to go and take yeah, many resources. Well, the United States has done plenty of that in our past. Right. Kathy, I'm going to have to cut you off there. I've got to run. Um, Kathy Kelly is from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Earlier this month, she was in New York protesting at the U.N. and the Saudi consulate there about ending the war in Yemen. Also on the line with us has been Shireen Aldini from Michigan State University. She will speak tomorrow at a lunchtime rally to end the war in Yemen at Federal Plaza. She'll also speak at Loyola University on Saturday. Thank you both for joining us and talking about developments with the war on Yemen. Coming up after the break, we'll talk uh, with the Costs of War Project. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The War in Yemen and the War Powers Act we were just talking about figure prominently in our next conversation. The Cost of War Project is keeping a running tally of how much the post-9-11 wars are costing in terms of lives and money. Nita Crawford is one of the directors of the Cost of War Project at Brown University. She is political science chair there, and she is the author of Accountability for Killing, Moral Responsibility for Collateral Damage in America's Post-9-11 Wars. Thanks for uh, joining us, Nita. Thank you. It's a pleasure. But let me just correct something. I am a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Boston Boston University, University. though the Cost of War Project is based at Brown. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Cost of War Project. You've been uh, at it for a while now and kind of trying to keep up on what's going on. Right. In 2010, about 24 scholars gathered at Brown University to begin to look at the social, the economic the political consequences of the war on terror. And then uh, in 2011, those 24 academics mostly published short papers and started the Cost of War Project website to coincide with the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and the beginning of the war in Afghanistan. Well, what, what are your latest figures? What is the cost of war these days? Well, when we started, uh, we calculated that in 2011 that we'd spent $3.2 trillion in various categories of spending, including overseas operations and uh, medical and disability and so on. But right now, we're at nearly $6 trillion for the U.S. war on terror and uh, the obligations to care for the veterans that have returned from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
All right. I think that's a figure that would probably surprise a lot of people. I mean, everybody knows it's big, but that's really big. It's almost kind of like a cognitive dissonance. We don't really have – can't wrap our mind around that. It's it's hard. Uh, You know, if you think about it, a million dollars is a lot of money. Well, a billion dollars is a thousand times one million. Then, of course, we're up to six trillion almost in terms of obligated and already spent money. And that's a thousand times a billion. It's really, yes, it's quite a lot of money. What about in terms of lives? You also keep a tally of uh, how many people have been killed in the post 9-11 wars. Yes, we calculate that uh, total, about half a million people have been killed directly, that is, from bombs, bullets, fire, from these wars. And that is various categories, you know, civilians, military, uh, U.S. military, the the adversaries, uh, fighters, media workers, journalists, and so on. Yeah, it's a a lot. And And then that doesn't actually include the probably half a million people who've been killed in the war in Syria. And the, and you also don't include um, kind of mortality study statistics that would normally be clu- included in, I don't know, when, when Les Roberts did his studies of Iraq that were pretty controversial, that people were surprised at how many total people uh, have prematurely died. Well, he's right. And all the people who do this analysis who talk about indirect death are correct because clearly uh, it's obvious when someone's shot or uh, steps on a landmine. But when you destroy infrastructure, you actually cause people to become sick or die. So if they don't have electricity or their hospitals have been destroyed or they can't get to a hospital because the roads have been damaged or bridges are out, then that's called indirect mortality or indirect death. And the problem with that is it's very hard to calculate it. Uh, So when when the United States destroyed the electrical infrastructure in Iraq, it wasn't rebuilt for many years. And that led to uh, lots of morbidity and mortality in Iraq, which we don't count because it's so speculative. The best studies on this say that the indirect death number can be one, two, as many as eight times the number of direct deaths in a war. I'm talking with Nita Crawford. She's one of the directors of the Costs of War Project, and they keep a running tally of how much the post-9-11 wars are costing in terms of lives and money. Um, Nita, how much of this is... um, you know, I think a lot of people look back and say, well, it was all the Iraq War. Um, uh, How much of it is recent? How many um, are, are, uh, you know, I was looking in the military times today to check and see if anybody Mm -hmm. had died recently. And of course, there's three special ops killed by IEDs in Afghanistan. uh, Just on Tuesday, there were dozens of Afghan civilians killed in Helmand province in a bombing after uh, a U.S. air power was called in after a firefight. Um, There's, there's people dying right now, but it's hard to get a gauge on how many. Well, Afghanistan has seen an uptick in violence in the last few years, and it's in part because the conflict is essentially at a stalemate. The Taliban and uh, al-Qaeda and other militants are making advances and controlling more territory. In a sense, things get calmer once the territory is controlled by any side, Uh, but in the contested areas, yes, the violence has increased. The 
violence now is as it's higher than it was, let's say, 10 years ago in Afghanistan. And in uh, Syria, of course, uh, things are winding down in some areas, but there's also a great deal of violence. So, yes, these are active war zones. There's also fighting in Pakistan that's related to the United States war in Afghanistan. There, and the United States is engaged in special operations all over the world in about 80 or 90 countries. How much media attention do you get for the Costs of War project? It seems like vital information that everyone should know, but it also seems like something that is so incomprehensible to, and to look at it is so depressing that, that nobody wants to look at it. Well, it's quite a bit of media coverage. I think that the thing that's difficult is to uh, try to think about the cost in relationship to other values. So uh, we have benefits. Supposedly, we're, we're better, we're protected by the war, wars on, on terror. That may not be so. It might be that our homeland security spending is actually protecting us. Um, there are long-term costs that's hard to comprehend. In, in other words, when the three million soldiers who've returned from Iraq and Afghanistan and these other war zones um, become veterans, they're eligible for benefits. And so it's hard to think about the cost of these caring for these people in terms of disability and other benefits into the 2020s, the 2030s, the 2040s, when their costs will grow. So I think you're right. It's hard to comprehend the big numbers. It's also hard to comprehend the sort of scale of commitment that such a long war is uh, obliging the U.S. to take. What do you think about the conversation about the War Powers Act? Uh, we were talking about Yemen in the previous interview, and uh, there's some thought that Congress would challenge uh, the presidency on the War Powers Act. Is that any kind of way to draw down a long war? Uh, there, there are a few people in Congress who, who consistently say, well, we've got to go back to the authorization of military force and, and do something. Well, Congress has been quiescent since 9-11, essentially, and usually just uh, goes along with whatever the president wants. I hope that this next Congress will take seriously their obligations to at least have hearings and to discuss these strategies. There's no strategy to end the war in Afghanistan. It's more of the same. The Pentagon's planning to spend uh, into at least 2023 uh, tens of billions of dollars every year. And uh, it'd be nice if there were at least hearings on that. In addition, I think that, uh, yes, uh, a blank check was given after 9-11 with the authorization for the use of military force. I hope the American people have learned their lesson that no war should be given a sort of blank check and no leader should be given carte blanche. But um, that's why we do the Cost of War Project, so that people can recall all the promises that were made at the beginning of these wars, uh, that they would be quick, that they were necessary, that we could control them, that they would be precise, that they'd be cheaper than sanctions or law enforcement, and that this would be good for the economy. None of those things have proven to be the case. If people want more information about the Cost of War Project, where do they go? Costofwar.org. Costofwar.org. Or they can... Yes, or they can go to the Brown University Watson Institute website and link to it there. 
Nita C. Crawford is one of the directors of the Costs of War Project at Brown University. She is political science chair at Boston University and author of the book Accountability for Killing, Moral Responsibility for Collateral Damage in America's Post-9-11 Wars. Thanks a lot for joining us, Nita Crawford. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment, and we'll hear about some young people who are learning to use human rights as a tool at home. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. It's time to visit with our friends at the organization Genesis at the Crossroads. Founder Wendy Sternberg is here. Good to see you, Wendy. Yeah, thank you, Jerome. Good to be back. Remind people what Genesis at the Crossroads is. What are you doing here? We're a not-for-profit organization based in Chicago looking at where cross-cultural collaboration in arts, education, and social justice can create bridges between people and build peace. So you're using the arts to make peace. Arts with education. Very good. And one of your projects is the Genesis Academy Summer Institute, and you've been bringing young people to Chicago, and they've been coming and visiting with us in the past. Explain what you're doing with the Genesis Academy Summer Institute. This is a pilot program uh, building into a boarding school for global leadership, and that is a massive undertaking. So Genesis Academy Summer Institute is the pilot part of that program to test out curricula to see how many people we can bring together and what is a critical number where this cross-cultural collaboration can take place, where people can learn from one another. And it's really investing in next-generation youth leaders out to change the world. Explain how many people are involved right now this summer. So this summer is a much smaller program. We had lots of visa issues and challenges with current circumstances in our country. So not getting visas, not just from the banned countries, but other countries where there's a large population of Muslim young men and women. So this is a small community, and we have a lot of represented countries, Cambodia, Venezuela, Pakistan. Uh, We have a couple Americans in the program, one who's Southeast Asian American, one who back a generation is Guatemalan American. What are the things that the young people do when they get here? We work in four different curricular areas. The underpinning of the whole program is human rights and social justice. So as I said, heroes in human rights, music and peace building, environmental sustainability, and peace journalism. And the whole curriculum is all art infused. Explain the type of things you've been doing. 
In Heroes in Human Rights, we had a program where a human rights lawyer, Matt Rooney, who teaches rule of law and uh, a number of different ways to work on transitional justice in countries emerging out of conflict, Nita Kolhaktar from India, who's a journalist from Mumbai and an editor, and she was talking about the journalist as an agent for social change. So the students actually got to watch a scene in To Kill a Mockingbird, the jury scene with Atticus Finch defending Tom, and looking at the ways that society may have laws, but if they're not alive and well in communities, then what kind of societies do we have? And one of the most powerful parts of the program is that we meet with Jamie Calvin, who's the investigative journalist who broke the Laquan McDonald story and catapulted the whole Black Lives Matter movement and some of the police overhaul and reform in the city of Chicago and beyond. And it's amazing for the students from all over the world to meet with him because one of his constant refrains is, how is it that the world got organized or these sets of organizations got organized that this set of circumstances could show up? And it's actually a question that can be taken to any particular issue And through the lens of peace building, we're actually flipping that question with the students and saying, how could the world be organized such that the building of peace shows up in XYZ community or set of circumstances? And we look with them and through a set of case studies and issues that are real-life issues at some pretty complex and chaotic matters. And that really helps students to do a whole lot of critical thinking, which is a big part of the program. Now, we've got some young people here at the table. Introduce me to them. To my left is Rima Devon. And she is the young woman that I mentioned who's from a suburb of Chicago, Lamont, Illinois, and is from a bicultural family. You'll hear more about her. And Nayab Ali, who's from Pakistan. And Diego, who has a very long name, Diego Alberto Madriz Lorente from Venezuela. We're drawing students from 21 countries at this point, four years into doing this program, and have a lot of demand to be in the program. Uh, Nayab, you're from Pakistan. Where in Pakistan? I am from Punjab, Faisalabad, which is the third largest city of Pakistan. How did you hear about Genesis? Why did you want to come here and do this? I've known Genesis for three years now, and it's just something that I really, really want to do. Because being from a country like Pakistan, my country is great, but we still have a lot of problems related to human rights. In some areas, you know, there is still honor killing. There are still people who can't pursue arts or music as their passion because it's just not traditional. When I learned about Genesis Academy from some of my friends, it just felt the best way to learn, you know, because this is experiential learning. It's not just going in a classroom and, you know, listening to lectures. It's actually getting out there and doing something. It's nice that you're here from Pakistan. And let's talk with Diego Alberto Madriz Lorente. He is from Venezuela. Tell us a little about yourself, where you're from in Venezuela, why you want to be here. Hi, nice to meet you. Well, I'm from Caracas, the capital of Venezuela. I wanted to be in this program because in my country, human rights aren't respected. They, in the protests in last years, there was repression in my country. They shoot the students, they throw us gas bombs just for protesting. And also, I want to be a voice for the LGBT community because my country is a sexist country 
and there are a lot of people that are homophobic in my country. What have you gotten out of the program that you think you could apply to your situation? In this program, I've learned a lot of things, such as we went to the streets of Chicago to be real journalists, and we interviewed my topic was about homeless because it could be really interesting to see how can I be a journalist in my country and also let the people know what is really happening in my country. Diego Alberto Madriz Lorente is from Venezuela. He's participating in the Genesis Academy Summer Institute. And you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. And the third participant that we have here is from Chicago. Rima Devan is here. Thanks for joining us. Of course. It's my pleasure. Tell us about yourself. My parents were born and raised in India. I've been in Chicago my entire life. And I have an older sister who's in medicine. She is a medical student at Rush, which is in the west side of Chicago. And I'm very passionate about children and art and music. And she got me a internship with the community engagement director, Mrs. Gates. And with that, I get to work with students from the south side and the west side of Chicago. I hear about how these students go through such horrific problems with gun violence, police brutality that as children they shouldn't have to go through. So for me, it's a really big deal to be here. So thank you for having me. I'm glad to do it. And you've met so many young people from different places in the world now. What's that experience been like for you? Unbelievable. The first time I heard about Genesis was through my sister. And I learned like kids from all over the world are facing such different issues that all relate to each other. And just working together could bring so much change than just one person from one area having to continuously talk about something that's really not working. So working with students from different places and hearing what they have to say, what they've tried, what they've learned could just become like a back and forth thing that we could use with each other. What's been your favorite part of the program so far? That's a hard question. I've liked a lot of things, actually. But I think the biggest thing for me is the community, our family, our Genesis family. Because if I was to go listen to someone speak to me just by myself, it doesn't have the same effect than all of us here together listening to that person and being able to relate to each other, have someone you can talk to and know from somewhere completely different from where I'm from. Nayab, what has been the favorite part for you so far? Although I've been to States before and I've met international students, but being here in this program and learning about the fact that we are all students of pretty much the same age. Each one of us is facing some problem in different country, but we are fighting for it and we are fighting in our own ways. So just to connect to them that we are working for the same cause, but we are just located in different countries It's really something that touched me because I've never met anyone from Venezuela or Cambodia, and I had no idea about the situation and what's going on there. Trust me, when I came here on the first day and we started talking about it, I was just so surprised. Diego, do you have a favorite part of the program? Oh, well, I have also felt this as a family. But I also like the fact that we did a song all of us in different languages. Suno. Sun. Stop. Ecute. Sun. Ecute. Escuchar. Listen. We are 
had like 48 hours to do it and it was a different experience because for me music I use it as therapy when I was stressed and that was the best part for me in this program how we all join our languages to work with a song because music doesn't have a language I do a rap part I'll start on va lorsque ça m'a l'égalité on l'utilise à la Révolution française. Nous sommes tous pareils, nous sommes les mêmes. Il ne portait pas s'il y a des différences, des cultures, une nationalité, les couleurs de la peau ou sexualité. Et tous nous sommes frères sans rencontre avec mon affaire de tête aux pieds. Great. <laughs> Now, what did you say? <laughs> I'll drink some water. <laughs> okay. Ah. Oh, okay. uh, I told in this song that an important value is equality. We use it in the French Revolution. We are all the same. It doesn't matter if we are different cultures or nationalities, the color of our skin or our sexuality. We are all brothers without fear. We have a world to work for from the bottom to the top. All right, that's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. I'm glad you did that. I wanted to ask about a trip you took. Uh, you know, you went to the Lincoln Museum down in Springfield. Um, what was that like, Wendy? Jerome, one of the things we're really excited about is this was the fourth year we're taking students down to the Presidential Library in Springfield. That's the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. We were looking at Abraham Lincoln's legacy in the Civil War, all of the issues with his own personal attacks from many different factions, a lot of chaos between the North and the South in the Civil War, and looking at what it is to end an institution like slavery and overhaul a country and bring people together across tremendous divides. So Genesis at the Crossroads and the Summer Institute are all about taking students from particular conflict areas or post-conflict areas and working with different subject matter and the arts to create these bridges. So it's amazing to take history and make it alive today. And we had the opportunity of working with the person who's created every single installation that is theater-related for the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library since it was founded. And we take that issue of looking at an institution called slavery and map it onto the 21st century and ask the question, how are we creating spokes of a wheel that keep enslavement possible for people in a modern age today? And what does that look like? And how do we redefine slavery that may have looked different than what we found when Abraham Lincoln was alive? And who was this person who grew up in such poverty and learned to read by himself, went all the way through law school, no means, but had such drive and tenacity to end something in a country and unify a country that was so divided? And I think these are messages that are so completely important to today. Um, to look at all different factions and how do we create common ground and how do we think about our differences as assets to ourselves and to our world. Rima, what did you get out of it? So going to school in Chicago and the schools I went to, I never really got to understand who President Lincoln was and why is he one of the presidents that we hear so much about and know the name of other than the other beginning presidents. And I learned so much, like he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, which I'd already knew, but I didn't know what came after that, like how many people were so against it, 
even if they were slaves and if they were white, and how many were for it. Wendy, what do you hope will happen with these young people when they go back? I mean, you're trying to build global leaders, and how do you test that out and see how they're doing? It's a great question, Jerome. We take a look at a number of the projects that they create after they've left the program and look at some of the things they've learned in the program, what they're actually applying in new organizations. And I think the best way to answer that question is to give you a couple examples. Uh, We have a student who really took on this idea of arts-infused education and what does it mean to be innovative and creative and took that and combined it with social justice work and entered as a chief technology officer of a company that's helping with people with hearing disabilities. And they entered a competition for the Pakistani Cup in innovation, and they placed 12th in this. So this is not people sort of stirring the pot a little bit or doing something lightly. They're really taking it to a very deep level. And then we have a junior staff person who came back this year named Sochiata Hong, and she was interested in education when she first came into the program. And for the most part, careers are limited for young women in Cambodia. There's just a few choices that are acceptable. And she realized through the program and working on social justice issues, doing interviews of people who were either homeless or uh, looking at the issue of people who are invisible to other people, she actually realized that human rights was a big issue for her and took on the idea of being a translator for a human rights organization. And this year in working with the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, learning from a photojournalist who works with fixers all over the world to gain access to issues, she then changed changed her career ideas to using the translating skills to be a fixer in Cambodia to help people address human rights issues and be able to communicate with people on the ground and have local knowledge. So it's that kind of depth of really taking this work into the world. How do people get involved in the Genesis at the Crossroads Summer Academy Institute if they want to nominate someone or apply? How do they do it? Well, we now have well over 40-something students who've done the program, so they recommend students. It's an invitation only. There's a number of global networks that Genesis at the Crossroads is involved in that I'm personally involved in as well. So we performed with our professional music ensemble, Saffron Caravan, at a program at an Institute for Peace and Justice, and I met a female Supreme Court justice from Kabul, and her sister's a human rights journalist in Kabul, and through her we had students students apply to the program. But now we need people on the ground who can help identify people, and then we take the finalists, and then we do a Skype interview. So it's an intense process to be in the program. What's been the best thing about doing this? You devote a lot of your time to doing this, and you're a physician. You're a doctor, and yet you're doing this peace-building exercise with young people. You know, people always ask me, do I miss medicine? I left a career 20 years into doing it at the height of my career, and I think— This is really what healing is all about. As a physician, I was tremendously fulfilled by taking care of people. And as I started Genesis, and I was working with people from all over the world, artists from all over the world, and then beginning to work with international students, I found taking care of one person at a time started to feel small. And this idea of creating global communities around healing really spoke to me. And I think the thing that's the most inspiring about this work is it gives me such complete faith in this generation to take on the problems of the world. It's so easy to become cynical today with everything going on. And 
divisions between people. And you just wonder, will we ever come together on any issue? And the crises we're facing are so deep and wide. And when you do a program like this, you know, we sit around a table and we're eating together and the discussions are vibrant and you realize it's all possible. We just need to create encounter. Wendy Sternberg is the founder and executive director of Genesis at the Crossroads. You can go to their website at GATC.org and get more information, GATC.org, and that's Genesis at the Crossroads. Thank you all for joining us, and congratulations. I'm glad you're having a great trip. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. changing and so are you every minute that goes by someone's born someone's new look at the gifts of life how we connect and try try with cd effect Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the big event at the G20 summit, the discussions between the U.S. and China. It's a big showdown on tariffs and the relationship between the U.S. and China. And we'll do some thinking about where things are going this weekend at the G20 tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.